Some recognition. Yeah, talk about movies that we saw for the first time in advance of Ready Player One, and we'll start with Ben and Jaws. Ben, first, let's just let this sink in uh, that Ben, the oldest and most wisened among uh, this group, oh, wow, <laughs> and most withered, um, <laughs> had not one... seen Jaws, and I'm almost I'm jealous that you hadn't seen Jaws because what fun to be able to watch Jaws for the first time. It was fun. <laughs> Did you have any? Well, how was? What was it like? What was it like watching Jaws as a as a, a as sure. your stage the stage in your life? <laughs> um, well. Uh, <laughs> No, I think the thing about Jaws and and because it's obviously seventies movie, but it's also Steven Spielberg. And like I'm watching it, and I'm like, this is just really well done. Everything about it is really well done. And in the way I watched Jaws, the way I started thinking about it is like, it's like watching the car chase in Bullet, or the special effects in uh, Metropol- uh, Metropolis, or something like that, where you're like, this is just really good. And then you're like, oh wait, they did this when? <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, they did this in like 70... 75. 75. Yeah. And that's the other reason. I, did. I was not alive then, just to be clear. Just barely. No, no not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> uh, but, uh, no, but I'm like, okay. Did if... you leave going, do you hear about this movie, Jaws? Because <laughs> Nathaniel was the one who watched it, and I made Nathaniel watch. There's a fantastic bit by the late comedian Richard Jenny about how bad the sequels for Jaws get. Well, in particular, Jaws the Revenge. Jaws the Revenge, and it's just like, and That's he does this four. thing where it just slap, he slaps himself about like, this this movie is just like slapping you in the face about how stupid it is <laughs> and so it's like yeah that's the other thing about Jaws that's like this is where this is where sequels get out of control well yeah it's, a, it's such a weird thing to think that Jaws which is this like certainly it's is genre but it, it's one of those movies where I think even more so than some of his other popcorn movies that I might even like more where it's those things where if you like watch it enough you kind of you can glean a lot of meaning from it even though like the essential drive of this movie is like these guys don't need to kill this fucking shark um, yeah. but there's but the, the way that those three characters interact there's so much that's a pretty rich you know rich like, movie and the town that's built you know like the community that it establishes is something yeah. that is uh, a lot richer than it needed it needs to be in that kind of movie as evidenced by Jaws 2-3 yeah. you know, <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's such a microcosm of Spielberg in general because he's often blamed for the kind of like dumbing down and blockbusterification of, of Hollywood and it's like yes of course if you make Jaws 2 in response to Jaws it's gonna seem like Spielberg yeah. really fucks something up but Jaws is great would would the, any summer movie we get this year is is, is you know of half as good as Jaws I uh, my sister made me watch one of the sequels and I thought that that was Jaws until I was an adult. But I realized that I had never seen Jaws. <laughs> also, the Jaws Nintendo game is fucking scary. But moving on, Sarah, you uh, did watch War of the World with us. Yes, Speaking I did. Of fucking scary. Yes. <laughs> I think you said something to the effect of it was a little. It was different than you expected. Perhaps it was very different than what I expected. I was expecting a fun pop. Movie. <laughs> oh. And when I got was a 9-11 metaphor. Yeah, it was very traumatizing to watch actually. I mean, I don't I don't do well with children in peril in general, and that's basically what the first half of that movie is. 
um, is D- uh, Dakota. Yeah, Dakota Fanning. Dakota Fanning screaming <laughs> um, and being totally useless. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's normally the type of movie that I don't really go for at all. The disaster kind of thing. The disaster movie. And also, um, I generally find alien movies more scary when you don't see much of the alien at all. Right. Um, so... For the most part, it works. When it got into the part in Tim Robbins' basement, I started getting like, all right, like, <laughs> well, how much longer is this going to be? Um, <laughs> and the answer is it will end abruptly very soon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Which, I mean, but I... But, like, first you're in that basement for forever. Yeah. yeah it's, then, but that sequence yeah. is very... I found that sequence very tense, but... Yeah, it, but it, like, you're stuck in that basement. Yeah. No, you, you feel it. You feel what it would yeah. be like to be with Tim Robbins there. <laughs> <laughs> now understand what Susan Sarandon's been going through. <laughs> Well, it's an, it's a weird movie because it does the trailers and stuff really look makes it look like There's like big disaster. Movie. Yeah, Independence Day, buildings falling over and mm. stuff. But you don't the trailers don't maybe even show this, but probably don't put it in the proper context. Where you, the little things like Cruz getting back to his house and being covered in the dust that is people's bodies, mm. and that's like very <laughs> yeah. clearly that's your nine eleven. Yeah, they're the very clear nine <laughs> eleven analogy, and also seeing Tom Cruise like Mister Hotshot like being absolutely terrified and out of his he like gets back to his house and he like doesn't know what to do i right. do feel like i know we've discussed this apart from this podcast <laughs> i have tom cruise problems with that movie where he still seems like he's ethan hunt in mission impossible like he's the only one that knows how to get the car to start and he's like the only one who can like he's supposed to be this kind of blue collar not that great father but he's like the only one who could put the crate in the <laughs> thing in the opening shot you know he's like the best blue collar with like whatever he is <laughs> well, yeah, yeah i think like to, to me part of the deal with that is that he is that but then is caught with <laughs> not like he can do nothing in response to what's happening. Well, yeah, sp- like, particularly it's still a very Tom Cruisey role and a Tom Cruise performance. It's very, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, to movie. me, it's well tailored to Tom Cruise and it just right. kind of makes him feel more to me, like a more real version of him where he's not like, so he's great at putting the crane in the thing or the whatever, uh, at his job, and he's like thinks he's hot shit for that, but like but he still runs like Tom Cruise and has his perfect teeth. You know? Sure, he's, like, but he he's, cannot make a peanut butter sandwich. <laughs> yeah, he can't make no, a peanut butter I sandwich. I feel like if you had cast a different actor in that role, I would feel that a little more. I, I, Instead, like, it's like, oh, here's Tom Cruise, and they're telling me he can't make a peanut butter sandwich, but you, he can like you know you know in real life he'd be in fucking like, running he, craft services. But <laughs> but uh, but no, to me it's like it makes it a little scarier because you're used to Tom Cruise being the guy who can like dangle from a helicopter and and drag you to safety, and then when his uh, his son wants to go off and like help the army fight the aliens there is nothing he can do to make that kid not want to do that and that to me is really scary and really and i don't think the movie resolves it and not even in, again it's not like the like the kid is alive at the end and i don't have any real problem with that it's like less what happens at the end of that movie than how yeah how like he like shows up at the house where like not even the windows are broken <laughs> like they just killed an alien like three blocks away and, and like they like... just they don't find a way to me into that that moment when he leaves to me is really scary and like yeah in, intense and really you know it's not like movie in the same way that something like et is but like it's you know it kind of shakes me to like you know have this he has his son who's like, I need, I need to go do this, and he and he leaves. That's incredibly terrifying. Uh, and then Cruz goes through all this horrible stuff with the blood of the, all over the land and trying to protect his one kid he has left. All that stuff is really harrowing to me. The movie, to me, doesn't quite make it back into the through that woods in a, in a way that like really nails it. Like It's a really weird thing where Spielberg is known for being kind of 
uh, you know, like Thanos said, sort of considered manipulative or sort of right. tugging the heartstrings. And it, War in the Worlds, it's War of the Worlds, it's so perfunctory. Like I was hoping I would get some kind of heart swelling moment, and it, it's it's kind of a little bit like what I had with Ready Player One, where it's not hollow enough that I feel like that's the point the movie is making. But it's also not like legitimately moving enough that I like just on a mechanical level, just sort of they hug and then the movie. Kind I think of it's ends. an it's like an awkward, like that's where the kind of the the thing is not connected, knitted the way it yeah. would be because all, all along there's the kind of fatherhood story about Cruz's character that he you know needs to be i mean this is kind of a glib way of saying it that's why there's a whole movie to do it but like he needs to be, learn to be a father he yeah. needs to learn you know and like that's why it kind of schematically at the end the the son has to survive because you have to 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 resolve the fatherhood part of it it's he has to realize that his son is old enough to make that decision and that he then is not going to be punished you don't punish the character for learning the right lesson right right but <laughs> When that's knitted together with the September 11th parable, which, like, uses the original ending of War of the Worlds in a weird, in a kind of interesting to me way, though again, it's like the knitting together of it that isn't, that is yeah. awkward, where he goes, Tom Cruise initially is uh, America on, September, on the morning of September 11th, you know, there's these horrible things creating clouds of ash and raining devastation, and he feels unsafe for a long time, and, and then ends up falling in with a like uh, underground cell of Tim Robbins and then ends up being basically a suicide bomber himself. Yeah. And it, the parallel is kind of the par- the like parallels are flipped so that Tom Cruise all-American hero is now the Iraqi uh, insurgent. Yeah. You know, by the end of that movie but they're being occupied by the Yeah, by the he's being occupied and then like the and then the way that ultimately that occupation is resolved is not well if we just get together our forces you know neither america nor the people that uh we invaded can resolve this because what's really going to resolve it is that the large uh, empire is too big to survive basically yeah. it's going to like die <laughs> die on its own it does not elegantly in any way knit that together with yeah. the family storyline yeah uh, so it's like a super powerful incredible movie that i think still works in the end thematically for that ending but the ending doesn't land the way it yeah and it's but you know before the last five minutes that movie's a <laughs> stunner for me but it doesn't completely stick it. Okay, next up I saw for the first time Schindler's List. I have two things <laughs> to say about it. Um, the first is that it was definitely like one is about the way I, it was the movie that I expected it to be, and one is about the way it wasn't the movie I expected it to be. So like I expected it to be upsetting and moving, and it was. And I didn't watch it when I was a teenager because I didn't think that I could handle it, and I think that. Waiting until now, I kind of almost made it worse for myself because, like, you're, like right there on screen is a movie about how like the systems of power can easily shift to push people towards atrocities, and that people who are comfortable under those systems like have a hard time. Oh, like waiting until this year, you mean? Yeah, like yeah. not not where yeah, you are. Yeah, so it's like here yeah. I am. I'm like crying at scenes where parents are being ripped away from their children, and Ice is out there doing the exact same thing, and I'm not Oscar Schindler, so. That is, like, doubly upsetting. Right. But then, in the midst of all that, I wasn't expecting it to be a total, like, Hollywood glamorous movie star role for Liam Neeson. Like, he's lit like he's Cary Grant. Uh (laughs) So young and handsome. I feel like I, like, I'm just a little bit too young to have missed Liam Neeson as a movie star and, like, only kind of picked up with him for the Takens and the Unknowns and the... Or the mentor, when he was the the mentor. Oh, yeah, the Qui-Gons and the non-stops. Yeah. So it's like... (laughs) 
the razor ghouls. Yeah, like seeing him as this cool. like um, Beautiful womanizer young, yeah. with the, like the beauty light on his face. And... That's another instance. I mean, he was around a little more than Ray Fiennes. We were talking. You and I were talking about yeah, this. Yeah, like he, Ray Fiennes. Liam Neeson was a working actor, and he's Dark Man in a few uh, years before Schindler's List. Yeah, like, can Dark you imagine Man? like Bruce Campbell being like, <laughs> well, yeah, like it's Oscar not just, Schindler? Like it, Liam Neeson is he's not super well known before Schindler's List. Ray Fiennes had done like one movie before Schindler's List, and now they're kind of fixtures. You know, they're in movies like they're in like two movies a year each. Uh, and everyone's always happy to see them and whatever, right? Everyone's, we're always happy to see Neeson and Fines. But Spielberg... The incomparable. The incomparable. <laughs> Liam Neeson's. Uh, but Spielberg plucks them both pretty early. Like, it's slightly less so for Neeson, but, like, certainly for a leading role in a kind of mm-hmm. prestige movie that was, like, his first big thing like that. And Fines was almost nobody. Um, and he gives and they're and both like Ben Kingsley is so good yeah who was Ben Kingsley yeah. <laughs> Kingsley okay <laughs> alright fine he knew Kingsley he was the known quantity but the other but yeah the two other the three it's interesting also it's nothing like Jaws obviously but it's interesting to me that so much of the movie plays out between these three men you know I'd kind of forgotten how closely uh, Fine's character is twined with Schindler in the movie I remembered that being kind of more separate stuff because I hadn't seen it all the way through in years um, but yes, so much of the movie is the dynamic between uh, Fines, Neeson, and Kingsley, and, and they're all fantastic. Like, yeah, like they come to an understanding about what they're doing without that ever being really discussed between them. Okay, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, though no, that the Spielberg. That's where Spielberg's sort of intuition with the camera really helps him a lot in Schindler's List. I think is where you're sort of that kind of journey you go on from him. Schindler being pretty opportunistic to eventually, like, his mission by the end is saving Jews, but it's not done in a way where it doesn't, like, he doesn't sit down and say, okay, this is what we're doing now. It's sort of, Spielberg so elegantly kind of pushes through that, even with time jumps, which is the kind of thing that usually sinks this material in terms of momentum, but he really kind of makes you understand kind of gradually, oh, okay, even though you know that's the story oh, okay, this is what he's doing, this is how this happened. It's, it wasn't, like, a question of him just sitting down and saying, okay, now we're going to start yeah. saving people's lives. And yeah, like, I think in a, in a lesser confident director would, like, have there be, like, the moment where he realizes he's got to do something different. And yeah. Like, and there, like, he sees something or he, and he has a change he, of yeah. heart. He'd have to have a monologue afterwards. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to, to, I mean, because, like... The movie kind of does that gives you that. Is the red the red girl where the, he's, the, he's watching the liquidation of the yeah, ghetto and yeah, sees the little the, girl and the camera kind of like swivels around Neeson, uh, <laughs> you know, like in a way that is kind of on the nose, being like his perspective has shifted radically in that moment. Yeah, but it's really played with just the the cinema of it and Neeson and it, yeah there's no scene afterward where he goes to like he like barges he, in yeah, to like, King's time to save the Jews yeah. Yeah, like. <laughs> or like even even like a you know there's not even like a subtler version of that with him and Kingsley being like you know I really saw this thing I don't know how to feel about it. you know like it really is <laughs> okay. you just played in the storytelling of it and not the you know not kind of feeding you that extra beat well and, and it doesn't the and this is another thing that people kind of knock about this movie and it really struck me different watching this time um there's sort of two ending parts of that movie that are sort of like the big emotional moments and the one that got to me as a younger person was the very end where they sh- it's something what they do in all these docudramas is like show the real people and the scene of them at the end of all the Shinland jews today and they talk about how their descendants numbers of six thousand or something more jews than there are in poland now um, really, you know, obviously it's a big, like, tear-jerking moment, but the part that kind of, I'll think of the kind of more, perhaps, erudite critics uh, ding Schindler's List for at the time is the scene before that with uh, Leeson's last scene in the movie where it is the first time he kind of speaks to what's happening 
where he's going, you know, I, I could have saved more. Uh, That's the know. part that they make fun of in Seinfeld. Yeah. After I saw that, uh, I like yeah. retroactively don't think that episode is funny. Because <laughs> I was set, like crying at Jesse. I was like, Oscar Schindler saved thousands of people. What did Judge Reinhold do? <laughs> <laughs> well, like that scene, I think you know people thought was the reason I think people were they were comfortable making fun of it on Seinfeld is that it, they felt like it was kind of over the top. But watching it as an older person, I don't know, like that. I'm sure it hit home for me too, watching it as a 13 year old. But um, that scene, because you don't see that from Neeson the whole rest of the movie, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a moment at the end where he can't take it anymore. He like can't. He really does have this little breakdown. I'm sure it's not wasn't what happened in real life or whatever. But I feel like you need that release of someone saying like not only that this happened and this was terrible, but this also this sudden like crushing sense of guilt that he could have done more you know there's always could have been more people who were saved um and that's something where i that retroactively like i am baffled by the how someone could watch that and be like oh so manipulative <laughs> like that someone's sad about the holocaust boo you know um, because i think that seems remarkable and and liam and neeson's great in it and like you know yeah that's that would that really hit a lot harder this time all right, shifting back to Sarah, staying in the war, you're Saving Private Ryan. How did you escape Saving Private Ryan for so long, Becky? Um, well, because I, I was... Well, she's not a dad. I'm not a dad. <laughs> it was, like, too uh, violent when you were I a kid. I was 12 right? when it came out, I uh-huh. think. Um, I remember my parents, I think they probably went to see it in theaters and them coming home pretty, like, upset about uh-huh. by it. Um, but it just, for so long, it was always just that movie that beat... That Shakespeare in Love beat at the Oscars, and that was really all I knew about it. Um, and all the bros who were angry about it. Yes. <laughs> I guess I avoided it because, like, when, although I did find time to watch Schindler's List when I was younger, it was like, when's when a good time to yeah. sit down like by yourself and watch <laughs> Saving Private Ryan? I was like, well, not really ever. Uh-huh. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm very glad I watched it. Um... As we've already said, like, technically speaking, it's, like, an unimpeachable movie. And and even now that so many movies about war have sort of copped the, sort of, you're right in the battlefield, and it's, like, it's going to be really loud, and there's, like, going to be gore all over the place. Um, that, for that like, 20-minute sequence, that D-Day that it opens with, is very stressful to watch. And I can't imagine sitting through it in a theater. I don't know that I would have handled it very well. Um, I barely handled it here. <laughs> well, I'm, like, sound, something... <laughs> The sound design for that in a theater was kind of the worst part, I thought. Mm-hmm. Like, the the surround mix of the bullets whizzing and everything was just, like... I mean, obviously, what's on screen is also really upsetting, but the the sound mix is so immersive that mm-hmm. I feel like watching it at home is helpful <laughs> to get through that. Yeah, yeah, and just the... You admire the way it's choreographed, right? Because it's like, it looks very chaotic and feels very chaotic, but clearly it was, like, blocked to the right. degree like they it was clearly very planned um how gory it was did kind of bother me it, it did seem a little excessive at times um it does serve a purpose like it's to make you feel like you're with this band of brothers right like you've become one of the soldiers now because you've been through it um so to speak and for the most part those characters didn't really pop as individuals for me they felt sort of um cliche uh like they all have their little story like Gianni Ravisi wasn't very nice to his mom (laughs) (laughs) and like you have the Jewish one who gets very angry and you have the Italian one and 
you have like Jeremy Davies. <laughs> the coward. <laughs> the coward. <laughs> with his little typewriter. <laughs> um, so again, like technically speaking for, I don't watch war movies that often um, because I, I struggle with, it's with how much seeing violence on screen tends to glorify it. And I think that's a huge problem with a war movie. Like, it's easy to say that Schindler's List was, like, a good World War II movie because it was showing the Holocaust and, like, their, you know, the, necess- the necessities of fighting this battle. And actually seeing the violence of the, you know, on the battlefield is, like, it's, it's hard to grapple with saying, well, it was necessary. You know, like, thinking about it from a political standpoint, I really struggled. And, frankly, the bookends kind of pissed me off <laughs> um, with the, I understand why they were put in. You made, sure, a really good, you made a really good point, actually, I thought, watching about veterans watching the movie. Yes, I think a veteran seeing that would be incredibly moved by it because it's probably something that maybe had been in documentaries before but had not been on screen, um, like an actual soldier visiting a war field. Like, that's a very emotional thing for somebody who's been there. Um, I found it, like, it, it. that's the one part of the movie that tilted too much towards being jingoistic to me. Um, so, and it felt kind of artless. Yeah, it's, it's surprising. Like, my, my, like, kind of surprise watching, rewatching it for the first time in a while was how poorly acted that scene is. And, like, and the more so, even more so in the kind of big emotional release scene that, where you come back to it. There's like the kind of uh, Ben forwarded me the William Goldman article, <laughs> about, Goldman article. Uh, about about how it's such a cheat that they cut from someone's eyes to like another but, place. Yeah, but that's, that's, yeah. that's just one. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. of problems that he has in his. But it would. But no, that, that, and that always very that similar always, to that Saris, which is like you have these first twenty four minutes that are just brutal and just war is hell and it should never happen. And then you have, oh, a typical war movie where it's like, yeah, but sometimes it's glorifying and great. And yeah, Spielberg is not, like, out to be as, as probably as critical as a lot of us would like of, of you know, because it's like he, I think he does think of it as, like, the good war. And he does a good job of bringing out, like, like this is the good war, but it was still fucking horrific. But, the, you know, it's it's still, there's, like, kind of traditional elements to it because he's kind of a, in some ways, you know, story-wise, he's sort of old-fashioned. But the, I don't have a problem with that much stuff as much as the bookends to, are so... And I think I don't find them misleading uh, the the way that I don't think you know that that Goldman does. Yeah. <laughs> well, so you think about the end of Schindler's List was like so good. Yeah, and, and it's like, and, how did you lose it? Yeah, <laughs> you know? and I think like, I think really this is not not I wouldn't always say this is the case, but in this case, I think just losing those. Yeah, it wouldn't have made a difference. Would have made. Like, go ahead, Ben. You know, <laughs> oh, no, I'm waiting for the apology. <laughs> so, like, what I would say is, I like I don't know that I'm. I'm not going to defend the execution of them because, like, whatever. I do think he tries to mitigate the jingoism of it by having... He shows you your, your American flag, but it's, like, blown out Janos Kaminsky. It's not the red, white, and blue. Ah. He's, like, trying to cue, I think, that this is not about... Uh, I mean, it, it's a, he's walking a line because it's, like, that, that movie came out when there were still World War II veterans alive going to movies you know like his father was one i think yeah um so like you know he's kind of walking the line between honoring that experience and those people and also uh, to me the wraparound is more kind of something that he keeps returning to whether consciously or not in schindler's list this one amistad lincoln 
uh, *The Bridge of Spies*, movies about kind of uh, the value of human life, and that like *Saving Private Ryan* without that wraparound of Private Ryan himself. I mean, I guess you could just have Matt Damon play it, and that'd be fine. I'm not gonna uh, argue really strongly that you know that uh, it needs to be the way, the exact way it is, but the story of that they even like explicitly talk about in the movie of what sense does it make to send six guys or nine guys or whatever to rescue this one person. So yeah, it's like a PR mission. Is kind of the calculus that Spielberg is working through in a number of movies. You know, like Schindler at the end is talking, if I sold this watch, I could have saved this many more people. And like where that line is drawn and like what the survivors in Samuel Fry Ryan's case do about it like you don't get any indication as an old man that private ryan did anything good with his life exactly you see he has a family and you see him asking you know kind of yes his wife reflecting yeah. on his life and trying to you know she's asking for reassurance basically but he's trying to to say am i a good man you know did, did i do something good with my life but the movie doesn't insist what that you know really the question is like what is good enough like the indication is basically you just have to be like a decent human. You have to be a human I being. I think that you, you still to... get enough of that from just what happens with the, oh, the wraparound. Well, and I think just the, from the conversations they I'd have so, about and like, I'm not, like the PR mission. I'm not constitutionally opposed to there being a wraparound. I just but think those like two sequences really are like, stu- like considering how virtuosic so much of that movie is. Right. I think are stunningly like clunky <laughs> on, on, from yeah, like, someone of Spielberg's caliber to not notice that that would you know what that what that reminded me of is East Clint Eastwood. It was like that kind of Clint Eastwood <laughs> thing of like oh. These actors weren't that great, and nobody seemed to have helped them be better. And <laughs> and it's you know it's sort of yeah, just this kind of perfunctory like yes, this is this yes, this thematically makes sense. Like Spielberg, uh, Eastwood movies are rarely you know they often traffic in that same kind of like not exactly ambiguity, but, but sort of um, you know trying to grapple with something and not necessarily arriving at a clear answer. And in the weaker Eastwood movies, that kind of comes out kind of just like eh, like you know because they're not they're not kind of uh, disciplined into <laughs> into a more kind of decisive shape, and I feel like that w- I was very struck, and I didn't wouldn't have noticed that at all in 1998 because like at the times Eastwood wasn't really making those kind of historical <laughs> drama movies. Right. But now watching it in retrospect, I was like, oh my god, this like this is weirdly previsions late period Eastwood um, in he, a way. Eastwood that, saw that movie, and that it was movie, like, yeah, was he's like, yeah, he's like, yeah, the framing sequences are what he wants for all of his movies. <laughs> he, and he's like, I bet that didn't take long to do. <laughs> right, no invitation. <laughs> And then, Ben, we both watched The Color Purple for the first time. What did you think? What did you think? <laughs> what did you think? I think my observation of The Color Purple is, like, another, like, observation about what it's like to watch the movie in this year, which is that it's, like, a movie with, like, an almost entirely African-American cast. Like, there's only a couple white people in it, and they, like, really only have a couple lines. Mm. And it's not very plot-heavy. And it was huge, and I can't imagine that <laughs> happening today. Like, I can't imagine, like... It being like that widely seen without any like kind of Wakanda going on, you know? Yeah, like, it's like if Fences <laughs> was like the fifth highest grossing movie yeah. of the year. It was not. <laughs> yeah, what, but that was it. <laughs> that, was, that was your whole take on it. That was my whole take. Well, <laughs> we that, didn't that, really that this talk movie about... was big and you didn't understand why? Or... No, not that I didn't understand why. I think it, I understand you... why. I'm just like surprised that movies now, like, can't. I mean, like, it's part of the movies like that aren't being made now, but it's well, like, at least not a big studio. Well, like, 12 Years a Slave was not. I mean, that's... Yeah, no, but they're, that's the thing. They're... Like, this, like, wasn't really... I mean, this like, was, bad things was, happened This was also before, like, you had the uh, split of indies from, like, major studios. Yeah, that, that, that this was like, a major studio 
production yeah. and was like yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. a lavish hit movie. It's like, yeah. I guess, yeah, and, then, like, and it's not about yeah, yeah something like Mudbound now it goes to Netflix. You know, it's not about like yeah, it's not a, it's not an like, issue movie per se. Right. Exactly, it's just like you know what happens to this small community of people over forty years. Yeah, right. And yeah, um, also we didn't really talk about like music in Spielberg movies, and I. And like liked the you know all the John Williams scores and it's like but watching a whole bunch of these in a row it's like when I started to like really feel suffocated by it and well, like the color purple one is that's Quin- Quincy Jones yeah, yeah Quincy, Quincy Jones, Jones does it yeah. worse than any any yeah. Williams do it's like in all of them you see, start to see like how upfront it, all that music well when it's is, not it's someone like, who's as skillful as Williams I felt this way about Very Player One too where I was like if the score isn't as like high quality as I think Williams generally tends to be and there are some where I think even with Williams it's kind of smothering but when it's not Williams the degree that he needs to use the music for something like Color Purple or Ready Player One and it's Quincy Jones or Alan Silvestri who's fine but like it really starts to feel like oh this is a lot and the music isn't good enough that I'm like roused by this like it's especially Color Purple it does it's just like it's It's just like too upfront yeah Yeah. it's too upfront and like sometimes weirdly inappropriate (laughs) it's interesting like like, when they're doing like wah-wah horns about like well you should just beat her and you're like what there's some weird moments <laughs> like, of like of, just of like, Spielberg are, are comedy playing, in the color purple yeah, exactly. are you playing spousal abuse for laughs here what's going he, on or he has like an abusive dude like there's like a kind of zany running gag where he keeps falling through was it the abusive no it's her the uh, brother it's, it's uh, Harpo yeah. Yeah. Harpo yeah. keeps falling through things and Har- but this is when Harpo like is trying to um, you know like get control of Sophia and like and Cece says like, like beat her and it's like wait what did you just say and like rather than this being like this weird traumatic moment like where you're just like it's like the music in it is oddly just like upbeat like well isn't this gonna be a fun this was discussed as something at some point to that it might be a musical and it was turned into a broadway musical yeah um and there's several points in spielberg's career where you see movies usually the ones that don't work that as well where i've been like why why didn't he do this why didn't he do 1941 as a musical i don't think that was under serious consideration yeah. but like the musical sequence in 1941 is great and the rest of the movie is not great well and the, the <laughs> musical sequence the musical sequence in the color purple is pretty great too. is actually one of the better parts of the movie <laughs> yeah. yeah so i was that's weird to me watching it is like this feels like it like it, there's no reason that it shouldn't be a musical and yeah. i feel like that would have solved at least some of the yeah. problems now i wish it. i had seen the musical rather than the movie <laughs> Did you, how did you feel about it, uh, watching it for the first time? Yeah, I'm shaking my head, because I'm just like, like so I, I also watched uh, Amistad for the first time as well, which is, they're both brutal, but like, Amistad is just like, well, you know, it's just the, the brutality of it, and like, it's like one of those very serious movies, and this one, sometimes it's serious, sometimes it's played for laughs in weird ways, and then kind of just what happens is just like, you're kind of... Sh- Scratching your head, going, "Wait, what?" You know, and I don't know the source material very well. It's so got a melodramatic quality to it. Yeah, and and that actually, and the kind of sense of and, genre, and the, not even a sense of and, drama. And melodramatic only. is actually because, like, we we've mentioned that like, the Steel and Spielberg is like gets a knock for being manipulative, and I don't usually find that. But when I was watching Color Purple, I'm like, "Wow, you are really trying to be manipulative here. <laughs> like, you are you are want me to, and I just am not." He's saying, "Jerk those tears, Ben. Get yeah, those exactly. tears marks running." Exactly, it's, and like. It's just such a weird project for him. Like, what drew him to this material? I don't... It's <laughs> bizarre to me. It's like, the novel is such a, like, female empowerment woman's story. And I don't think of Steven Spielberg <laughs> as a particularly adept filmmaker when it comes to women's stories. So it's just, it's just like an anomaly to me. Like, how did this even happen? I think it's interesting that you mentioned... This was also, like, the very first, I would say... 
serious. It was like, yeah, the first kind of like, this doesn't have any elements of fantasy or or action. Yeah, this is going to be my realist. And then it's like, and then you spend, then then everyone, like, I don't know that you get the Spielberg, the ones that you were talking about today, like the ones like... Bridge of Spies, yeah. Post, Bridge of Spies, Munich, even Schindler's List without getting, like, like... Someone who gets interested in like yeah he's trying well and, issues and, and history and like and, you it, know all of you know those types of things. it's interesting that you mentioned it with Amistad because that one it, both it's interesting that he has these two movies where he's like trying very earnestly and not you know I don't think either of them are necessarily problematic in the kind of white guy making a black movie except that the fact of that but but he's like very earnestly trying to explore aspects of the African American experience in in America. And that's part of that makes sense because he's interested. It's kind of color purple is also sort of the first cue that like, oh, he's interested in American history beyond like in World War Two we fought these ma- these bad guys called the Nazis. Yeah. You know, it's a little more like okay, he's really interested in some of these like more kind of serious historical dimensions. And Amistad really feels like a dry run to me. Like okay, he's trying something that eventually became Lincoln Bridge of Spies, The Post. It's not quite as... Yeah, it doesn't hit as it's well. Not, it doesn't, although the sequence, like the opening of Amistad, really anytime they're on the slave ship on, the, on Amistad, I think it's stunning filmmaking. There, and, and the brutality, like the brutality the, of... The those. movie starting with Diamond Hansu digging out that... The that, nail. The nail out from his, you know, that's chaining him up good. to the board. Right. Uh, is terrific. And that whole sequence the, where the slaves rise up and, and, uh, and like... Uh, give, all great. they take over the ship is terrific and they show flashbacks later to more stuff about the slave ship and that stuff is really interesting like he's almost weirdly in that movie more adept at the black experience side of things than he is at the kind of courtroom speechy stuff that he does i think better and lincoln is a very speechy well, yeah. movie but it has a it, the direction of it is much more smooth i think although i will say anthony hopkins is john quincy adams underrated movie president or ex-president in this case and underrated way over long monologue <laughs> uh, it's like super long and like in a realistic and kind of tedious really, way uh, and towards the end he gives the, his supreme, his, court, his supreme court argument his real supreme court argument was four hours long. yeah so this is so, like, much shorter yeah but it's long it's for like a movie the length of an average it's, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, and it's long for a movie and it doesn't it's it's, it's, well, not, it's not, not compelling. <laughs> well, like, I, it's like compe- I found it compelling to watch, but it's not compelling in the like. And this is why you have to set yeah, these exactly. people free. Yeah. Like, exactly. If you have what was it, it was something like seven justices on the Supreme Court at the time, women from southern states and owned slaves. So yeah, they, like, they lay that out in the movie. Yeah. Uh, okay. Sure. Yeah. It seems all right. <laughs> what he just said, you know. But it is interesting to me that Check. he that he tried those things and yeah. and, and and like in some ways acquits himself well with it, but. I also would get killed for both of those movies today, even though I don't think either of them are really, like, really as clumsy as they could be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Color Purple is, I mean, again, no one's ever going to knock the technical bits of it. But like and it does have colors. And it does have colors. <laughs> it's it very lush looking, color, yeah. It has it that has purple. purple. And it has, I mean, it's like he loves He likes the sunflowers. He loves flowers. Well, I think there was a thought at the time, and I, I can see this, that it's almost too lush and like, and gorgeous. It weirdly. Well, I feel like yeah, those people some... should watch all the Spielberg movies in a row and be like. <laughs> well, too lush and gorgeous for the kind of horror yeah, no, that it's I mean, kind of actually right. And, that's the, and that's, that would be my knock against it is like the tones in just places are. Like, again, it's trying to be manipulative, but somehow, like, missing because the tone is just off in well, it's, weird places. Yeah, it's, I think it's maybe overly filtered through a certain kind of old Hollywood sensibility that is interesting at a kind of intellectual level, but I don't think works necessarily yeah. emotionally for the movie. Yeah. 
And okay, so speaking of weird tones, Jesse, do you want to talk about kick the can from the Twilight Zone movie? Uh, here, so I, I'm generally I'm with Nathaniel in that I can find you know something to like about most of his movies. Uh, I don't care much for Always, uh, but I've seen it twice. You know, <laughs> I give it another shot. Kick the can, uh, which is his segment from the four segment Twilight Zone movie. I totally never seen before. I've never seen this movie before, and. That's like the this is like my token moment where I could say this is god awful. Uh, I pretty much hate every you minute of this. The That's the moment that the yeah I should explain uh, the, the remake of a Twilight Zone episode. Yes, where also the, it's the these elderly folks at a, at a nursing home, uh, a oh, magical yeah, yeah, black yeah. man shows up and they talk about how they'd like to be young again and he makes them young again and then they sort of realize that it's not it's not such great shakes being being little kids again again. Um, and just like, uh, I remember that. Yeah, that was the one. Like, I remember the little the, kids still talk like old people. The best one, yeah. Yes. Yeah, there's other good segments in that movie. This, it's insane to me that there's a four segment Twilight Zone kind of all star movie where Spielberg is the worst one. Well, and it's, it's everything that anybody ever says about him. Yeah. You know, like, it's treacly. It's it's kind of manipulative. The music is way up front. The music yeah. is way up front, and it's even the weirdest thing about it is that technically it's not very interesting. It's not interesting to watch. I don't find like I was I was my jaw was sort of like hanging open through half of it. Like I could not believe what I was watching, considering how even nineteen forty one or always or hook to me have these great sequences where you can pull them out and say okay, well you can see this is like a master filmmaker working with material that is not that's beyond his grasp. Or just didn't wasn't within the shape. Kick the can. It like should be like this easy layup for Spielberg. Make a twenty minute, thirty minute, whatever Twilight Zone episode, and it's awful. Just well, just awful. The the actual tragedy, of course, is that there was like the helicopter disaster that killed three people during the production of that movie. The like much lesser filmmaking bummer is that it's Spielberg's worst uh, <laughs> project by far, and he. Uh, I mean, it sounds like that comes down partly to him kind of checking out after what happened during Landis's the production of John Landis's segment, and that he like his heart was not in this one. You can tell watching it on screen, and it's a bummer because apparently prior to that he had talked about doing a remake of either The Monsters or Do on Maple Street, the original Twilight Zone episode, which is one of the best, and was he was absolutely crushed. Uh, it would have been great. Or an original project set on Halloween about a kid who, like, rampages around the neighborhood and then is menaced by, you know, a witch decoration coming to life as a witch and all of these, you know, Halloween-y monsters coming after him, apparently. That's, like, in the Nathaniel Strike Zone. Yeah, it's, like, a real <laughs> bummer that instead uh, he did kick the can, which is... Yeah, if it were a real movie, it would be the worst movie he's ever made. Um, but Nathaniel, what what ephemera did you dive into? Because you had seen all the movies. Right? I had seen all of his movies, I think all at least a couple times. I watched uh, an episode of a TV show called The Name of the Game, called LA 2017, yeah, where Gene Barry, the star of the original War of the Worlds, who cameos in Spielberg's War of the Worlds, uh, travels to a dystopian underground Los Angeles in... Uh, the TV show was 1971. It's all right. I mean, all of this TV stuff, actually, I would say you can see that he's like, you can see why he got his shots to make the big TV movie and then eventually features that he has an eye. He's, you know, doing something dynamic and interesting with the camera. LA 2017 is eh, all right. Columbo, he did the pilot 
for the series of Columbo. The <laughs> episode is called Murder by the Book. It's really good. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, Almost, yeah. yeah, if you like Columbo, <laughs> you're already in. But it's also, like, really well, like, as a mystery watching it, I was like, oh, man, I really wish he made a murder mystery now. <laughs> like, he's, you know, just uh, his facility with kind of, like, Hitchcock-style suspense and his uh, way with moving his camera to kind of reveal clues or what's important in different uh, scenes was, like, really well used there. He made a movie, a TV movie after Duel, the one that kind of is always thought of as, well, he dabbled in TV, made Duel, and then became a feature film director. Uh, he made a couple other TV movies after that, um, after Duel, before he made Jaws, or before he made Sugarland Express. One of them is called Something Evil, that is a uh, horror movie. It's kind of, I mean, story-wise, it's kind of a boilerplate, uh, you know, haunted house, uh, possessed kid sort of thing. And it's really enlivened by his filmmaking, which doesn't have... It makes sense it's not been rediscovered the way Duel has. So I kind of wish it was easier to see. I got like a crummy bootleg DVD of it. I wish it was like, you know, Universal or whoever would just put it out. But it, it didn't get a theatrical run the way Duel did overseas. And it doesn't have the kind of obvious connections to his later work the way Duel can be looked at as sort of a dry run for Jaws or something like that. But it's also a horror movie where the mother is terrified by her, like, increasingly strange and menacing child named Stephen. <laughs> In a way that, like, maybe there's still room for uh, some <laughs> critic to, to go and dig into that one. And it's, it, you know, resolves in kind of also, again, a kind of perfunctory way. But there's some pretty good scary sequences in the middle of it. So I guess something evil might be the... Uh, I get really the Columbo episode is the, the hidden <laughs> gem. So you're saying that you want him to like not do a TV show next? <laughs> no, I mean like he, you know, he, he wants a murder mystery. A murder mystery. Yeah, I would love to see. We'd love to. Do you think Brana would let him uh, have control of do another, do one, one, one of, just one time? One of the thirty uh, Brana Columbo <laughs> movies I'm expecting. Or... Something evil. The the thing it most obviously connected to is a movie that he doesn't. He has a producer credit and maybe a story credit or writing credit, but not a directing credit. Controversially, apparently. Uh, it's Poltergeist. It Something Evil is kind of a dry run for that. And I do feel like Poltergeist is worth talking about if you're talking about Spielberg because it looks like a Spielberg movie. He was reportedly on... Uh, there's controversy about, among whether he directed or Toby Hooper directed. And ultimately, it seems kind of a moot point to me. Like It's, it's like a real uh, good example of why talking about authorship in filmmaking is a fraught thing because watching it, to me, I would say... Yeah, that like the camera moves like Spielberg. It deals with a lot of his thematic interests. The special effects are done by ILM and look like you know they're shot like Spielberg movies. But you know, Toby Hooper, fan, uh, my, my friend Kevin Marr, you know, could tell me why it's a Toby Hooper movie because it looks like that. Yeah, or... like, I don't want you to make Toby Hooper internet come after us. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm happy to hear the argument. I uh, I love Poltergeist. Okay, so. Let's talk about a lot of movies, and maybe we can go and do one more round where we talk about maybe a movie that you think is underloved or one that is loved that you don't think deserves reputation. I'm going to start with Sarah. Oh, um, well, the one I picked for underloved, which I think is actually maybe making a, it's like ripe for reappraisal or already is happening, is AI. Woo! Um, <laughs> is that underloved? It's not in this room. Uh, yeah. This, yeah, this is a skewed sample of five people yeah. who really like so the movie good. AI. Well, uh, so when I, 
first watched it when it pro- probably when it came out on DVD. I think my family rented it and we watched it together, and I hated it um, because what I was like fourteen or fifteen, I think, and um, it was that thing where it's like, oh, it's ending now, and then it went on for another twenty minutes, and I was like, oh my god, <laughs> why? And those twenty minutes are a little wacky. No, <laughs> wacky. <laughs> Zany. Zany. <laughs> Do they have antics? <laughs> They're different. <laughs> yeah, and I think like for some reason, I think because I was fifteen, I was like Jude Law's in this, <laughs> and I was very disappointed by how little Jude Law was in it. Um, but I rewatched it last weekend um, just because I'd seen there'd been an article I think on AV Club that about maybe comparing and contrasting it as an adaptation as like a. Spielberg making a movie that Kubrick originally was going to do. Um, so I rewatched it, and um, it's I found it incredibly both traumatizing. <laughs> Having a nephew now, I guess, maybe helped a little bit. Um, and very moving, actually. Um, and having now I had the chance to think about the ending a little bit more, because when I first watched it, I was like, are those aliens? Like, what the hell is happening? Um, and na- recognizing now that they're actually, like, the... Um, the mechanics like are so far in the future that that's what they look like Um, so actually recognizing what was happening in the ending helped a lot (laughs) Um, but that's one where um, revisiting it actually was a really good idea because I took I got a lot more out of it and I wouldn't say I enjoyed it because I found it very um, like I said traumatizing like especially the sequences with him and the mother um, are incredibly difficult to watch but that was one where emotionally, I don't often, like I said before, I don't, I have trouble connecting emotionally a lot with his movies, but that really struck me. And it's weird because I think at the time a lot of people really thought it was a very cold movie. Yeah. It's, well, and I feel like it's both gets knocked as too cold and as being, oh, Sappy. Spielberg with his sap. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I can see the ending is, con- I mean, like, you're not wrong to be con- a little confused, but you weren't wrong to be a little confused by the ending at the time. I, uh, even I was when I was, I was older when I watched it. Uh, when older when it came out and I still found the ending a little bit confusing there's a little bit of disconnect between it it's sort of presented in a sort of a kind of lush and slightly syrupy way when what's happening it just doesn't 100% there's like a lot of narration yet it's still not 100% clear how some of the stuff works but I think this is the case of that kind of disconnect being both intentional and really productive like you you are this the little robot boy is getting his happy ending that is also like the end of all humanity. So it is both things yeah. at the same time. It's his happy ending, but why don't I feel good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or like you know, it's it's moving that he has set this like such bizarre simulation of love for this bizarre simulation of this mother, bizarre simulation of his mother, or of a mother. Um, but it's also like it's also really upsetting that like this is his whole mission and like why and that's of course i don't mean to harper a thing i wrote a whole essay about and i'm sure lots of people will talk about now not uh, besides just my weird obsession the idea that the movie really should have ended with him under the water waiting forever for the blue fairy that would have been that's the right ending is like maddening to me because what spielberg gives you is so much more complicated and contra- like kind of contradictory and interesting than just like, oh yeah, life's a bummer. You wait forever for something that never happened. Like, it seems so reductive to me. And to me, like, it's a great it's a great example of why if you think you see the right ending in a movie and the movie got it wrong, you're probably don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, if you're like, oh, the movie should have ended here, then there's probably a reason that you are not 
not being smart about that. But yeah, I love AI is maybe my favorite Spielberg movie. Like I don't know if it's his best, but I think it's probably my favorite. Um, it's so technically accomplished on every level, and also and like there's stuff in it that's funny in kind of a sick way. Um, Jude Law is fantastic. I know, in it. So little, as little as you oh, get from man. him, that <laughs> scene where he's being pulled away from me is like. I am. Uh-huh. I was. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh my god. They, what is them? They made us too fast and too. I wrote that down. Oh, yeah. they made us uh, too smart, too quick, and too many. Mm. Um, yeah, there's so many, and like, and first, it being Spielberg is one of his only writing credits in the past bunch of years. There's a bunch of great stuff, like that kind of been kept. The mom, you talk about the mother scenes. Her saying, "I'm sorry, I never told you Oops. about the world." Yeah. Um, yeah. Is like everything that needs to be accomplished in a single line, and then they. Yeah. He, and like, with I the, have more to say about the mother. Like, oh like, yeah, Kind of like it. the flip side of the absent father in Spielberg movies is like the competent mother, uh-huh. and this mother like decides that she does not love her child. Which when have you ever like? Seen right. that in a movie it's like yeah. kind of like a one of the last mother taboos you know so it's well it's like impressive and yeah. you understand like but and i i know people i think that actress spoke of being people coming up to her you know like, yeah, like years later and like be people like hated she said she felt like she it was harder for her to get cast and stuff after that movie because <laughs> people had such a visceral reaction against that character and to me it is like it's heartbreaking and it's terrible but it's also is understandable she is talking about something that's not a real person um, and it is still heartbreaking to see that, that little non-person, yeah, like, like, not a person, but it has feelings. Yeah, or, like, <laughs> it has what it, you know, it is able to simulate, it's, like, it's all very, like, yeah. ambiguous and horrible, and, like, I feel for that, that character, like, she's dealing with something impossible, yeah. and she doesn't, it's not like she just feels no remorse, like, she's kind of breaking down as she leaving, that shot of him in the windshield, mm. uh, in the forest, like, that is just shot after shot, yeah. moment after moment, that's, like, just is perfect to me and then also talk about you can't find the kid that whole movie is Haley Joel Osment and he's so good and yeah. so young and yeah. like, yeah. like didn't you say that it was like his decision not to blink yeah he brought he suggested it to Spielberg he was like should I not blink because that would be like a little weirder and creepier and Spielberg mm-hmm. was like oh yeah that makes a lot of sense he doesn't blink in the movie it's it's this subtle like really creepy effect yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's like why the wouldn't bear, they make, why wouldn't the they program bear. the robots to blink? That's such a, <laughs> um, but it's yeah, it's what a, what a smart little actor he was. <laughs> I also like something I noticed because I was watching it again. Probably is um, the way it sort of like twists or perverts like the classic ET the moon? symbol. Yes, yeah, the moon. Oh yeah, yes, where like that's like the symbol of beauty and like escape. But in that movie, it's like this symbol, like, sign of like, yeah, yes, yeah. imminent destruction. Anyway, yeah. Yeah, I right. thought that was great. Loved yeah. it. Um, overrated? Am I supposed to do that? Yeah, go for it. Lincoln. <gasps> now? Now? <laughs> you will get me those votes? <laughs> it's boring as shit. <laughs> <laughs> it is not boring. It's so it's so much less boring than it should so, be. <laughs> what's your overrated though? No, but I, but no. I want. It's this. very well acted, of course. I mean, you got fucking Daniel Day Lewis, but I don't know. It's just stuff like that where it's. This is probably speaking to personal preference, but if there's history that's already been decided, is very difficult for me to like watch on screen like i i know what's gonna happen so it didn't it didn't feel like i learned anything new or like got any like in the way of say reading lincoln and the bardo like the george saunders book about lincoln like that to me was a capturing of him as a historical figure in a really interesting and new light and this movie is just like well yeah i know that he did all this (laughs) and i didn't find it um i didn't find the courtroom sequences like i didn't get anything out of them i didn't find them interesting to watch and it's like they pause before they say yes or no and it's just like i it was interminable to me 
I think the what's interesting to me about that movie is the kind of messiness, the kind of like scrappy messiness of how it depicts democracy for something who's someone who's kind of considered a real Melvin, <laughs> like a real straight arrow nerd, like Spielberg, <laughs> for him to really revel in the sort of um, spader sleaziness. Of yeah, it. the like you know the kind of vote scrapping and like backroom deals and like kind of well, I, almost like, I can see maybe an argument that it kind of romanticizes that kind of like bullshit, but. I found that really interesting and also like it's an interesting technical exercise because I found the conversations in that movie really interesting and exciting and I feel like it was one of Spielberg's best jobs of like doing taking something and something could be very stagey and really directing it well like kind of the flow of conversation I think the way the camera moves with who's talking and sort of like Nathaniel talking about earlier about how cameras are positioned and sort of how they move they move through a room when when to like follow the flow of dialogue which is all the action I'm gonna say follow the flow of action but most of the action in this movie is dialogue um, so I do think it's really interesting, although I haven't watched it in a long time. And, like, it is, it's certainly, it's talky, and it's, like, you know, it's like, it's like personal preference, it's like, I like all that stuff, I like talking more. <laughs> but no, but I mean, like, the, for the subject it's taking, yes, it's a well-made movie, but it's a subject that most people know a lot about already. It just didn't seem like, I don't know, a very interesting way to go about telling that. Now story. I feel really naive. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know a lot of that I, stuff. Because I would say, like, it, for me, one, it really humanized him in a way that, like, he's not the great orator standing up there. You get to see he's kind of got a weird sense of humor. He's, like... <laughs> yeah. He, you no, know, like, it's... it humanized him as a person. And also, I would say it actually, like, changed my changed me politically a bit in that, uh, say, for this last election, when it became a lot easier for me where prior to that, I think I had been, like, socialized, conditioned, uh, kind of uh, brought up by the news of the era when I grew up to think that, say, Hillary Clinton, I, I don't know if we're going to get uh, any response to this podcast, say Hillary Clinton is a corrupt politician because she's been a politician for so long, she's got all she this blood on deals her. And, yeah. and that movie really kind of, I mean, this may just have been that I wasn't paying attention to the right places or wasn't allowing certain things to sink in with me the way that they did. But this was a movie that came out when, pre when uh, Barack Obama was president and I was, I, I like really admired him, still do. And that movie kind of presented politicking in a way that by having Abraham Lincoln be the sort of central avatar for all of this, you know, kind of backroom dealing that's going to get this thing that you know is going to be accomplished and is like an unambiguously good thing to do compared to where they were to see abraham lincoln be willing to trade votes on stuff that is bad or to you know kind of get into the mud that way really kind of changed my perspective of how you know like any disillusionment i was having as you know the uh I think that movie came out in 2012. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, so for the second uh, election of Barack Obama, it really kind of reoriented me in a way. Where, like, like, you know, I, I don't know if I'll chalk it up to Kushner, <laughs> you know, in the writing or Spielberg in the filmmaking or both, but uh, it, like, had a real effect on me. Mm -hmm. mm, I think I'm just kind of biased and, like, I'm kind of tired of seeing stories about what the great white men of America have done. And that's basically all it was. Uh -huh. So... That's it. That's just like my personal right. Feelings. How disrespectful to Mary Todd. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, honestly, like, let's not even get into that because, like, they kind of like she was very interesting, and I don't know. I mean, it's that's like what he does all the time. Though it's like the wives are never given really that much to do. I think he is getting. I think he does seem more conscious of the fact that he doesn't have a lot of strong lady characters in his. Uh, 
in his movies. Uh, Color Purple is like the kind of the exception that everyone yelled at some actress. I think Elizabeth Banks said Spielberg had never made a movie with a female lead. Yeah, you forgot Color Purple. Like the people in the comments. <laughs> oh, okay. I, just, yeah, I thought you said a strong female character. I was like, it's a lead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that, like, uh, well, uh, okay. she survives. I mean, yeah. But okay. I think it's inter- it's interesting in recent years that. You know his last two of his last three. Uh, BFG is the main the main character. The POV character is a little girl, and the post the main the POV character is is. I mean, there's there's a couple points of view in that movie, but Meryl Streep is the lead character. Yeah. There's still a really clunky scene where Sarah Paulson has to ex- as the wife has to explain to the the more prominent male character how brave the woman is. But I do think that Streep. It's really interesting to see both Sophie in the BFG and and Catherine Graham in, in the post as like, you know, this little girl and this much older woman. In, in these movies that Spielberg who does tend to you know skew very male that uh, and per his experiences and what he's interested in to him to try to understand those perspectives in the BFG it's not, not really very gendered in a way that it makes a huge difference but it is it's cool that it's a little girl's adventure rather than a little boy's adventure as all of his other adventures are right boy centric and the post I think is really interesting in terms again I don't know that he was the only director certainly he's not the only director who could have done it and I'm sure there could have been other female directors who could have done it just as well or better but it's sort of interesting to be like Amistad the Color Purple where no, he's certainly not being asked to make a movie about slavery or about uh, you know African American life in a certain time the post he's certainly no one's begging him to make a movie about this woman who owned the Washington Post but he does it because he seems like genuinely curious and interested. So I think that aspect of it, it's certainly, there's a lot of, you're right, Sarah, there are a lot of his movies are like, especially when he reaches back into World War II, it's so much like male history. You know, it's so much dad stuff. He's earned it. Like he gets, he gets the big bucks, you know, I get it. <laughs> it's just like, there are so many other people out there who would probably want to make those kinds of stories and just don't get the chance. So that's it. I'm done. We'll move on to the next person. Jesse, what is your... Uh, I, you know, it's, it's hard for me to pick an overrated because I, I do, you know, the mo- I, the closest I come is saying, like, I love AI and Minority Report probably more than, you know, E.T. or, or uh, Raiders. But I will say, it just like, I, I personally love those movies more, even though I think E.T. and Raiders are more kind of perfect movies within their conceptions. I'll, I'll tell, like, a pair for over and under, and this is, like, only by a degree. Uh, I am a little puzzled by people of my generation or a little younger how Jurassic Park is like a top three or top one Spielberg for some people. I love Jurassic Park. It's t- I saw it three times in the theaters. I have the Blu-ray of it. I've, we'll see it many more times. It's the it's great, but I'm surprised that people seem. I think younger people. If I could sound like an old old uh, <laughs> old dad for a second. And you do. Yeah. <laughs> kind of tend to think that it's like on par with Jaws, which is bonkers to me. Um, it's because it's not. It's well, like Jaws kind of is like created around the fact that they know that the shark can't be shown that much because uh-huh. that will lose its power. And then Jurassic Park, it's like the fact that those dinosaurs really look real as opposed to the fake looking shark. Sure, yeah, no, I, look, like... no quarrel with how cool the dinosaurs in that movie. Yeah. There are great sequences in it. I've seen it many times. I just don't think it's quite as rich a movie. It doesn't feel quite as a, like a as well, yeah. grown up a movie as Jaws, or sort of. It doesn't really get me much emotionally. I like you know I love Goldblum, sure. I like Sam Neill. I'm gonna piggyback onto your underrated because well, I don't have another one. Yeah, and well, I would say yeah, the the one that I think is underrated, the corresponding is the fucking Lost World, which I rules. Like, I feel like the Lost World <laughs> is overrated by YouTube. <laughs> it's not really as good a movie as Jurassic Park in its construction or like the kind of wholeness of it. 
the or the characters or in it. I mean Jeff Goldblum's still in it so Jeff Goldblum's in it but it's got like I mean it's the one with his daughter in the yes. gymnastics yes, and is. like and it kind of downgrades Laura Dern to Julianne Moore so yeah it's not as good as Jurassic Park in the kind of like traditional sense of a movie being like elegantly structured or, or you know well paced but the sequences in Lost World oh my are really really good uh, the sequence of them going the in the van that or the the trailer that gets knocked over the cliff while and Julianne Moore on the glass that spider web kind of cracking as two tyrannosauruses go and rip Richard Schiff in half. Um, the the raptors in the tall grass sequence, even the kind of raptors romping around the house sequence that follows the raptors in the tall grass. Tyrannosaurus Rex in San Diego is a blast. You also see Tyrannosaurus, uh, you know eat a lot more people which which i really appreciate so like, you like it that it's a nastier it's work it's a nastier movie much the way that temple of doom is nastier movie than raiders lost world is so nastier than jurassic park and it it is it dispenses with a lot of that ooh and ah as jeff goldblum calls it and gets more to the running and the screaming and also the getting stomped and eaten right. and, and there's the, the, the compies take out Peter Daniel, do you have anything to add <laughs> i love the lost, lost world, world. <laughs> uh, no i mean i like actually was gonna I misspoke. I wanted to piggyback on your overrated, and I kind of agree about Jurassic Park and that movie. And that, was, you were right, the right age. You were it, right well, and I was, and I love it. And like, it legit is probably the reason that I am like it. I think is, you know, the way that people my age think of it is their Star Wars. It was for me. Like that's yeah. why I ended up going to film school. Oh. Ended up moving to New York. Like oh, that's that's a Ben style story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Jurassic Park is very much like you know. I'd say like literally changed your life. Literally put me in the room with you guys to be friends with you but yeah like if you're looking at it as a movie it like i, I wouldn't even chalk it up to the special effects because like you know the he turns jaws into obviously the the shark not working into a strength by having you know having to build those sequences around its absence but the you see the t-rex all through that first t-rex attack in jurassic park and it's like one of the scariest set pieces he's ever created it's great and you know throughout that movie each time he uses the dinosaurs i think if you like looked at the uh, screen time it's probably shockingly little yeah because he used them so potently and so kind of really powerfully constructed sequences uh it's just really down to those characters are fun but yeah the relationship between grant and sattler and malcolm and hammond is not as rich or interesting as anything in jaws yeah. you know it's fun it's you've got jeff goldblum so it's a delight and sam neill ah, is great yes. and, mm. yeah and stop it. Stop it. and yeah same with laura dern like laura dern is really terrific in that movie um and kind of i feel like she's maybe an underrated part of that movie which is slightly uh overrated by people my age just you know because it hit them yeah hit them just right uh, underrated, I, I guess I would, will... Oh boy, oh boy, what's uh, it gonna be? The two for... <laughs> underrated? Yeah. So, you're, yeah. Okay. so the underrated ones, I would say the the two in two months uh, punch of Warhorse and Tintin uh-huh. uh, are underrated in that, like, I don't think they were seen as widely, or and they're no. certainly not liked as widely, and I don't, and they're not his best, of, you know, like, it's certainly not his best one-two punch in a year. <laughs> you know, he's had, like, a couple better than that, that's just the like depth of his filmography but both of them i feel like it's kind of a shame that they are if spoken of kind of looked down on yeah because they're both uh 
I mean, I, I think it's a thing that gets thrown at most of his recent movies, I would say, where people say, like, it's minor Spielberg. Bridge of Spies, well, it's great, but it's minor Spielberg. Yeah. The Post is minor, you know, like, all these things are... And I feel like Warhorse and Tintin are kind of are in that they're not... Like, Warhorse is kind of a kid's story. Yeah. Or, like, a fable, sort of. And Tintin is just, like, a adventure freakout, you know? It, like, kind of gets a bit of an emotional story with uh, Haddock, yeah. sort of, but it... It's, it's really <laughs> just flexing those Raiders of the Lost Ark muscles, yeah, and kind of the kiddier dimension. But both of them are full of like really dazzling, great filmmaking. Yeah, Warhouse is interesting because it's it looks or you know sort of it sounds on paper like it's one of his more later period like obviously it's not Saving Private Ryan but like it's more in the mode subject matter wise it's World War One it seems like okay this is in the mode of we, there's like very few World War One yeah it's 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 like oh is Spielberg gonna do for World War One but he did for World War Two over the ten thousand times he made World War Two movies nope no he's not exactly well that's the thing he's not doing that it's not Saving Private Ryan or Bridge of Spies or Lincoln or any of his kind of historical movies and it's but it's also not kid friendly enough to be the BFG which is yeah. more the register it's working in yeah and it's it's uh it's very like like I kind of said about a bunch of these movies I guess it's very old Hollywood like the craft of it is like it's kind of very it's very like John Ford kind of like you know lush landscapes and really beautiful cinematography well, and and I would say I, I do think that he's you know got obvious strengths as a storyteller but he's also you know we have talked about like the set pieces that he puts together that, yeah and that movie is really because it's following a nonverbal horse, uh, it really is a, a kind of the structure is sort of a chance to just sort of hang set piece to set piece to set piece, yeah. And not in the Raiders of the Lost Ark like breathless adventure way, but just kind of there's different kinds of set pieces. Yeah, there. and it's like it's just like a very pure kind of movie making to me. Yeah, I don't I don't think this is another one where I don't think the beginning and ending with the kid who's sort of the main who loves the horse the most. Mm -hmm work as well just because i don't the think horse, joey joey the warhorse right. joey yeah the war horse. uh like i just <laughs> joey the warhorse uh the kid the it's hard for me to like get into a horse movie the, and i know there's like a lot of horse people out there but like like a dog can change its expression in a way that a horse can't like a horse like looks beautiful when it's running and it's upsetting when it falls down but other than that like i don't <laughs> so the two like, registers you know, like, doesn't have a tail the way i, I, I mean yeah, like, it doesn't like, have a can't put its paws a over its eyes can't look at a person with love in its eyes according to me i you know? agree with that but like <laughs> i mean i like because i i think the reason i didn't have the sort of distance response to it the way you did is that to me like what was exciting about it was that the filmmaking jumps over that gap that it says we're going to take this like a war horse over a trench. It's, it's, it says, like, we're going to take a figure that cannot emote and make it and like, give you it. an emotional story. Well, and there are other characters in the movie, I think, are, you know, the little girl in the sea. In the yeah, center, and then they also yeah. get, like, and he has, like, a murderer's row of, like, British actors that yeah. pop up. And, got yeah, some, like, uh, Cumberbatch. You got some Hiddleston. Yeah. Uh, no, and the, like, I didn't have the same response to War Horse, but Tintin has Jimmy Bell. Yes. Which does elicit a <laughs> reaction. Um, no, I, I do. Th I do have a little bit of distance from Wars. I was not really moved by it. It has a big slush swell at the end where I just was like, "Oh, that's very pretty." But uh, you know, I didn't. Yeah, I mean, get I, like, I was, I guess, more moved just by the kind of beauty of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I, I think that movie is really interesting just as, as regarding it's like a beautiful piece of filmmaking. The cinematography is amazing. It's like, actually, I would say it's one of maybe Kaminsky's best uh, uh -huh. pieces for Spielberg. It's just a really, really lovely piece of work, like technically speaking. You look in that horse's eyes. You see nothing but <laughs> chaos and murder. <laughs> I see Joey the Warhorse. <laughs> but Ben, would you like? Did you have a? Did I have an overrated or an underrated? Yeah. yeah. What do you? One of them must be Hook, right? 
Uh, Wait, can I say hook. something about Hook? My dad really liked Hook. And if you went up to him and said, Dad, I think Hook's your favorite movie, he would never say no. He would just be like, Hook's good. <laughs> that's all he would say. And like, I've done that to him multiple times. Because I've caught him watching it on television multiple times, and he'd just be like, Hook's good. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've covered both of mine. Like, my underrated would probably be AI. Uh-huh. Again, uh-huh. and then my overrated would be Saving Private Ryan uh-huh. for reasons we've already discussed. <laughs> so let's talk about Hook. <laughs> so let's talk about Hook. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I'm a little bit serious. Can we talk Wait, about do when? I get to do one? Oh no, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, like I don't even know yeah, if what this you, is what? underrated no. because a lot of people like it. I just feel like it kind of gets ignored now, but. Minority for it. Like, I think about pre-crime all the time. <laughs> like, I think I about it I with, like, what? Yeah, that is, you're saying that's underrated? Yeah. I, I mean, think I, it, I just it, think that right now, like, it hasn't come up yet. Like, <laughs> you know, I feel like it's just kind of been glossed over. And I would say the same thing about Catch Me If You Can. Like, those, that year the, where he does those in the same year is, yeah. like, flabbergasting to me. Those are two Catch terrific Catch Me If You Can movies. is so good. And, yeah, they're so different. But, like, I do think about pre-crime all the time, especially for, like, to catch a predator shows. It's, like... <laughs> They didn't do anything yet. That's pre-crime. You know? like, <laughs> like, like no, you're not giving them a, like a, a minute to be like, I can't go through with this. Right. You know, right. like, yeah. Um, and yeah, like Samantha Morton is so good in it. Whole, and, like, that whole movie is just like an all cylinders firing yeah. like, and, masterpiece. Like, and, and it's it's what's what's particularly amazing about that movie is like the source material is much. I mean, yes, it's like got the Philip K. Dick sensibilities, but the source material is very slight. Uh-huh. It right, doesn't yeah. have a lot to it. It doesn't have a lot that you can pull, pull, pull from, and you know I gotta get you know I think Scott Frank wrote that along with John Cohen, but like it's just he goes to like this place where like there's just so much in that, and because I work in technology and like that damn screen comes up every time like the thing that he like, does swipe which on. like <laughs> looks super weird or like the ads yeah. that moved looked super weird when the movie came out but like now it's all, all ads moved yeah you know? exactly oh my god it's I forgot about the ads or like yeah. the ad when he's walking across hello John yeah. hello John hello John and then when he gets the other guy's eyes he gets different ads that's, what, that's what the Facebook ads are so right me, now I know I told you about my Tom Cruise problems like Tom Cruise is most effective when he's like a little bit more vulnerable like the Mission Impossible movies get better for me the more he gets beat up in them Goodness and this one is just like one thing after another they, you know, like him chasing after yeah. all of these like, things he's a drug, they mess with his face he gets droopy face because he doesn't he doesn't uh, because he's trying to disguise his face he has to like make himself yeah. all disgusting make he loses him. an eye which he has to chase yeah, has to down chase a hallway <laughs> yeah I mean there's so much like and again none of this is in the book here like the story it's like in the story it's pretty straightforward and like political and whatever but and I, like, I would and say Colin it's a, Farrell, yeah you want to talk about catching people on their way out Colin yeah. Farrell is so good in that movie yeah and he's like the first time I've ever seen him in anything and like, I will say I will to speak to it being underrated I would say it's underrated in the sense that I think there's still a fair number of people who would consider anything Spielberg made after Saving Private Ryan as less than the best stuff before right and I think that's bonkers like I think Jurassic Park is probably a better regarded movie than Minority Report and I think that's bonkers Minority Report is like a much richer movie yeah, experience for me that's number two. Yeah, and I would say uh, ones that are overrated are The Lost World because of you. No. Because of you. <laughs> yeah. And Anything with dinosaurs is overrated. So if you wanted to get bring it back to Hook. <laughs> I was just was curious. I mean, this maybe is a broader question. Like, Hook was the Does first film. Does like Hook? Is your question? My dad. Oh, it, it, people who were kids, I, mean, I think, I, at like, the time. I like Hook. Like, like, of course weird, you're going like, to like. BuzzFeed. Like, yeah, yeah. Hocus Pocus. Like, yeah. Like, they're always like talking about Hook. Yeah, like, like, <laughs> Those fuckers are always talking about Hook. Well, I think if you were, it's one of those movies where if you were a kid, I was 11 when I saw it. Um, so, and it was 
the first Spielberg movie I saw in the theaters. I don't think it was the first one I saw at all. I think I saw E.T. before that and probably some Indiana Jones stuff. But, and I've, I'm not like, I tried to rewatch it now and I've seen it many times. Um, and there's great stuff in it and it, there's also terrible stuff in it. I really like Dustin Hoffman and um, Bob Hoskins. Hoffman and Hoskins are great. I feel like Hoffman is like one of the few Captain Hooks that kind of... Um, Stay true to the source material that he's like supposed to be a grammar teacher. <laughs> he underplays too in a really nice way. Right. I love that his way of undermining the the absentee father is to like put the Charlie Cosmo, the the most popular child actor of nineteen ninety through nineteen ninety one only in a baseball game. In a baseball yeah, game. That, that, that's like big, a big fantastic baseball. little betrayal. And I think, and for that matter, I would say Williams is good in the movie, and uh, and mm. and Roberts, Julia Roberts is good in the movie. I don't really like Julia Roberts that much. Williams is a little bit has a little bit of his like making some like well, lame ass jokes in the middle of. Well, but I think that's but, that's the tension of it is like, like Williams wants to go off and do his own thing, and it's like, no, you're in a Spielberg movie. You have to like play to this exactly and it's yeah, like, and I think it, he, like Williams doesn't know he has some he effective like, effective scene yeah. yeah yeah you can't good morning Vietnam and you can't just be like just go do it you know like you know yeah. just go do your thing and it's a really messy movie what, what? <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna say how do you think Dustin Hoffman method prepared for this <laughs> <laughs> he went on the high seas from... <laughs> he kidnapped some children yeah. <laughs> away from their parents <laughs> Uh, so my... He just roomed with Bob Hoskins for oh, six oh, for six months. Oh, to see that funny yeah. comedy. <laughs> was there like a larger question you had about Hook? Or... No, I, I was just curious if people like. Well, I guess my, actually because it was my first in the theater, I was wondering if people knew what their first experience seeing Spielberg movie in the movie theater was. It sounds like you you didn't see AI in the theater. No, uh, my first in the theater I think was Minority Report, but I definitely saw Hook like on video. Yeah. When I was quite young. Yeah. And definitely remember viscerally like the <laughs> scene where the kids are taken away yeah and then when they come back and there's like the hook like the, the scratch, scratch along the wall, along the wall yeah. and like that like is it... imprinted in my mind but i also felt like even when i was like what five <laughs> five six to seven whenever however old i was watching it i was like this is like kind of bad <laughs> i don't know why we're all sitting it's, here it's watching a bit glamorous this. isn't it it's, it's a little I, I would say the kind of sensitive uh, child I was, I didn't care for stuff like the Ninja Turtles or like the kind of skateboarding and stuff. So even as an 11 year old, who I, the Lost Boys were pitched right to my demographic and I was still like, I don't care for them. They're like a bit, they're they're a like, bit too loud and uncouth for my taste. They're kind of um, formless food. Like. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, stop making a mess and yelling bangerang, Jesus. But I did, <laughs> but I still liked it as a kid. But yeah. Um, I don't know the answer to this question, so I'm going to sell out my sister. <laughs> Her first movie in the theater ever was E.T. and she threw up. E.T. is such a, like... It's, it's such a, a vomit-inducing movie. No. Well, I mean, it's... it's. I watched a bit of it on... It was on. I caught some of it on TV the other day, and it's it feels right that she threw up in it, not because it's nauseatingly whatever, sentimental or anything. It's because that movie is really weirdly tactile, and, like, the kind of images of it are... Like, as much as Spielberg is kind of dinged for being overly sentimental or lush, about especially about the suburbs, the kind of grodiness of, like, being a, like a little kid... In that movie is very vivid to me. Elliot in his pajamas in the woods and coming back with a cough and like that kind of just kind of like slight, you know their house is a mess because it's just like you know it's a one, it's a single parent so she doesn't have obviously doesn't have time to like pretty up the house. It's just like all kind of grimy in a way that feels so authentic to me and that that makes that movie really work for me like that that kind of like of course you threw up during it like it's kind of like an un, there's like a lot of discomfort upsetting. in that movie yeah. It's like, yeah it's upsetting but and discomforting in a real like it was a mix of like emotion and being upset 
that made her throw up. And, like, so when it goes to that really beautiful, like, you know, kind of heart-tugging stuff, that kind of symphonic stuff, where I remember reading about Spielberg talking to Williams while they're scoring it, being like, can we get away with this? <laughs> um, like, it feels earned to me, because the rest of the movie is, like, really, feel, is, like, pretty, feels pretty real to me. I also watched that movie during the re-release, and I was like, I want to buy a red hoodie. <laughs> <laughs> and I, did, and I, did. I, I recently lost that one, I'm sorry. Oh. Um, I can't, I think I saw Raiders. Oh, Wow. Wow. Yeah. You would only have been like 20 or 20 or 25. I think I saw Raiders. I think I saw E.T. I definitely. Wait, when you saw Raiders, did did your face melt? (laughs) I I mean, that part is definitely through the fingers. (laughs) (laughs) I did not understand what was going on. But like, but I definitely remember Temple of Doom in the theaters with my father and the heart scene oh man that that was great and then i also remember that movie because of the 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 mine carts and then thinking that's going to be a cool video game (laughs) it was the first time that i ever remembered in a movie being like they thought of the video game when they did this scene and so now gamer spielberg well exactly you know there's the that wonderful he loves his video games and um yeah so when when you know like would you what you like watch pod racing or whatever is it pod racing mm-hmm. and, yeah sure you know episode one of star wars and you're like they're thinking of the video game <laughs> and it just seems like now this is pod was the first time the first one to do that because i've i've played that game with the mine card so it's actually pretty fun <laughs> so, so Dana, do you remember your first i mean it must have been hook i think uh, yeah that's a time wise that that checks unless, I, you, unless you went to always when you were i did not see always <laughs> as a kid i didn't i didn't see any of Dana jones until video yeah same um here. And I, I mean, as a kid, I loved Hook, and then I went through the, like, period of, like, well, it's, the sets are tacky, and, you know, it, the kids are obnoxious, and, and that, the last time I watched it, I think, like, as I was, like, an over-30, approaching middle-aged <laughs> man with no children, and the, the turn where he, it is a very strange <laughs> thing. It's, like, to me, also, it's kind of... What marks it is sort of a weirdly personal movie for him, even though it is very like backlot set pirate ship looking. The moment where Williams realizes the reason that he stopped being he stopped being Peter Pan and went and stayed in our world and grew up was because he wanted to have children. And like really got me. Uh, so like even I mean I mean aside from the fact that it's also as most of his movies has like stretches like their abduction or the baseball game or things you know stretches that are just really really well done it also like you know landed for me emotionally in a way that like as a kid that that was not the part that got me it was probably the you know just the the size and scale of it yeah, and the yeah. kids and you know he really did lose his father yeah and like Robin Williams <laughs> I think Robin Williams is like interestingly cast because he's so like restrained Elfin, yeah. Oh, yeah. in the beginning of the picture and so buttoned up and then when he plays the first the completely regressed jumping around crowing like an idiot version <laughs> and then the sort of middle ground version of i'm peter pan and also a father yeah uh he's you know like that's in his wheelhouse and he's yeah. good at it so i think that as a kid that i i'm sure i responded to just like he, the fun of him yeah but uh the last time i saw it it like you know despite the fact that still some of it obviously like obviously the lost boys stuff is like very pitched at like 1990 children yeah um, in a way that I don't really respond to now, <laughs> but the emotional part of it still still got me. Yeah, 
right, for our last exercise, <laughs> we're going to each defend one Indiana Jones movie as the superior Indiana Jones movie. Sarah, Sarah has never be... seen. You're, you're all gonna be. It's gonna be targeted at you because Sarah's only seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. Is that right? Have yes. you never? Have you seen bits of the other ones? Like, uh, you know, like I the... feel like I saw the opening of Temple of Doom. Where it's, it's like, like the musical the, sequence. Yes, yeah. the musical sequence. What What are you it's making a face for, Marissa? That's a great opening sequence. Where he's chasing the antidote around uh, the ball. I'm gonna make it until he gets the mine. <laughs> nice try, Rauchay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we're each going to talk about the the best Indiana Jones sequel to watch. If uh... <laughs> none of us are doing Raiders. Well, no, because Sarah's seen Raiders. Okay. We all agree. I think we all agree. I mean, that I Raiders think the is world the at best large. One, I right? don't agree. The Raiders is the best one. Mine is the best. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, let's go chronologically. So I'll I'll, just, I'll say a brief word about Temple of Doom. Uh, aforementioned. First of all, it's the lost world of <laughs> Indiana Jones movies. <laughs> Um, Not off to a good yeah. start. <laughs> have, you, have you seen the Lost World? Anyway, no. never mind. Um, I think Temple of Doom is really great. I, this is I, I struggled for a way, obviously, to like pitch this to you because I don't expect you'll actually sit down and watch Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom, uh, especially because the lady in Temple of Doom is the worst. Um, Tina Spiller's wife. <laughs> yeah, that lady. Yeah. She just isn't. It's the, the character. character. Yeah, yeah, she's. Yeah. I'm sure it's she's like a, a wonderful parody woman. of a Shrieking Damsel. Yeah. yeah, yeah, a parody of a Shrieking Damsel and Short but, Round. And, <laughs> oh, but Short Round's great. He's he's darling. He's short. He's great. Do you like racist story, Asian characters? <laughs> oh, sorry, Sarah Swinson, Jesse. I don't think. This is gonna work well. I mean, for you. I would say Ben's I mean, trying to follow me out here. I'm like, trying to. I'm, my job on this is to follow everyone. Out. <laughs> I, I don't know, worry. When we I get can't teams. speak with authority, but I would say that Short Round is not the racist part of that movie. It's not the, the most racist. <laughs> Short Round is, a, is like a hero. Yeah, he's they, great. They love him. Everyone yeah, loves Short Round. He's definitely a caricature. Yeah, definitely. The pigeon English is one of those things. Yeah, yeah. Like, Ben is like the person in Risk who gets like the bad cards dealt, so all they can do is like break up everyone else. I was the only way I can think of to kind of pitch this to you was that I know that you are a fan of Mad Max Fury Road. Um, and maybe to like a lesser extent, but also I remember you like the Road Warrior, right? When we watched the Road Warrior, yeah. Pretty, I remember you saying something about the Road Warrior to the extent of this was so not my thing that it came went around the back and became my thing again. <laughs> um, and I don't think you'll have that experience with Temple of Doom, but I will say the back half of Temple of Doom is a like kind of sometimes literally in the case of the minecar roller coaster kind of <laughs> sequence of sequence of action sequences. That when I was watching Mad Max Fury Road, I was like, someone finally made the movie of this, that like the full movie of this. You know, there's quiet parts in that movie, but like kind of that nonstop like action, 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 and it's all really good. Temple of Doom is one of the earliest examples I could think of where that, besides Raiders, uh, and Temple of Doom even feels like they, but once it really gets going, it's when they get like down to the yeah, of just end. solid like. You know, fights, chases. Catch your breath. Go again. <laughs> yeah, go, go, go. And it, and the reason it doesn't feel kind of soulless and mechanical is because it is Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones, so you still are rooted into kind of like humanity there. Um, Everyone else, not so much. <laughs> but no, I mean, yeah, the other characters aren't as aren't as great as Marion Ravenwood or or anyone you know the best characters from Raiders. But like as a feat of that kind of en- action engineering i would say the the you know best parts of temple of doom are like as good as that kind of thing as as you've seen like they're on par with good george miller they're on par with the best star wars like you know intercut climaxes like it's that kind of like just pure adrenalized filmmaking that is you know similar to what you might have 
scene in Mad Max where he wrote, albeit it's not like a feminist statement like that movie is. And... Mediocre. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next. Marissa. Yeah, no, <laughs> the actual best one. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> is Last Crusade, which has like a very sequely conceit where he has to like be teamed up with his formerly absentee father, which is not my favorite part of it, although it does kind of like puncture the Indiana Jones like mythos, like you find out that his name isn't really Indiana. Well, they named the dog Indiana. They named the dog Indiana. <laughs> Um, you just but the what best I like part. about it is Sorry. that instead of uh, at the end, instead of they being like nonstop action, what he actually has to do is like solve a series of puzzles with actual thinking, <laughs> and like not car chase or mind chases and fights and just swords and, and and yeah, like some like the ways those puzzles work out are very uh, ingenious. I would say. So it is ni- it's nice fun. to see the archaeological, like, professor yeah. side of him in a movie, I'll say that. Even though I think that movie's a, a kind of a pale retreat of... Yeah, like, it is, like, back, going back to they're fighting Nazis again. And... Well, but again. let's yeah. be clear. It's always a good idea to fight Nazis. It is always no, good. yeah, no. That's... Nazis also, like, are there. Honestly, when I, was, when I watched these movies, like, I didn't know what a Nazi was, so... They could have been taking place right now, and I was just like, other places are well, weird in the world, you know. Like, um, and yeah, like I, like they these puzzles build so that like the lesson that you learn at the end is one of like kind of like humility, and I think that's a good kind of button to put on the end of Indiana Jones until. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I have nothing bad to say about. Last <laughs> Crusade, Last Crusade is actually the best one. Better than Raiders? You guys are crazy. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, wait, you're about to hear crazy. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I I already wrote a long thing about Indiana Jones. You can, you can check this out on our website. Kino with the Crystal Skull. Yeah. Uh, and I actually don't think that, Sarah, you should or would like to see it. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that, like, the it stuff... does have Marion. Uh, he's, he's actually going to try some reverse psychology. <laughs> no, I, just, I don't think... Like, the stuff that I Only most like about it, I don't like think it. is, like, like interesting to... I don't think you would find interesting the stuff that I responded to and like the action adventure filmmaking of it is not like it's pretty good I mean like there's definitely really good set pieces in it but it's not sustained the way Temple of Doom is the puzzle solving is subpar <laughs> yeah I, I mean say, like somebody would mumble something and they'd be like oh he's talking about that waterfall over there um but it uh, like one thing maybe in its favor if you're trying to like make a survey of Steven Spielberg as a like someone with particular ideas themes whatever uh it's the movie that most I, like last crusade starts this and then kingdom of the crystal skull i think really commits to it and makes it a thing in that movie of indiana jones is a person with feelings about family and and the world at large and his life that reflect i would say spielberg thematic uh interests like even down to the ending being a kind of, you know, for years Spielberg in interviews would say, if I made Close Encounters now after I've had my kids, I would never end it with Roy Neary leaving on the ship. And then he made uh, Indiana Jones 4, which, spoiler, that's, he does it. He, like, remakes that ending where Indiana Jones, it's not even a question to him. He's not going to, you know, jump off. So, it, like, in that way, like, to follow the biography of that, of his filmography, which, despite it being so diverse, I think does have a lot, a lot of personality and uh, like through lines, and that Indy Indy Four is like the one that most uh, 
kind of lays that bare in a way that like there's not the distraction of the kind of grisly nastiness of Temple of Doom, <laughs> which is great, or the uh, you know sort of giving them everything they want of Last Crusade, which also has like again begins that by introducing the father figure and has like the dazzling chemistry between Ford and Connery, which is like a big part of the appeal. Uh, you know, I think that Indy Four just by it kind of had to by virtue of no longer can they say this is taking place somewhere around the last time you saw Indiana Jones. Now he's 20 years older, 30 years older or whatever. We have to commit to it. And they do. And they like tell a story about a like older than middle age Indiana Jones looking back and realizing I've been Indiana Jonesing and like he meets Ramirian Ravenwood again. It's, she's not as cool as and interesting as she is in Raiders because uh, the movie is not as good as Raiders. But you know, again, it like, it does make interesting use of her character and their relationship. Um, so I don't know. I, I wrote a ton about this movie. Go read it. Yeah. <laughs> or don't. <laughs> so you're really selling that one. I mean, like, I love this movie, but like, I know it's a losing battle to, to sell it. It's one of the more more traffic pieces on our site, I have to say. I feel All like right. the, the movies that we've defended on TowardsAlcohol.com that have gotten a lot of outside traffic are Indiana Jones, The Kingdom of Crystal Skull, and Spider-Man 3. So <laughs> the, maligned, we, uh, the maligned the maligned the maligned sequels yeah <laughs> is, there, is there a verdict <laughs> which one um, are you gonna watch <laughs> <laughs> well Shia LaBeouf automatically disqualifies <laughs> right. the last one I'm sorry to say you didn't bring up River Phoenix but that would be a selling point oh, for me oh, damn it <laughs> last crusade um and probably not any of them yeah, let's be real I feel like that's the right answer <laughs> yeah Okay, so our parting thoughts question, so we have to just go around very quickly. No one gets to respond. Who is your favorite Spielberg character? Sorry, Sarah. Sorry, Sarah. <laughs> I mean, Marion, obviously, from Raiders. But I also want to say, um, she's not a character who maybe people would think about that often, but I really loved what Melinda Dillon did with the mother character in Close Encounters. I thought it was very touching, and it's a very interesting way to get at a character like that, where the audience knows what actually happened to her child, but everybody else doesn't. And I think that she gets at that emotional quality very well of like, well, this person is crazy, but we know that she's not. And I thought she did a very good job of bringing that to life. My gut instinct response is Teddy from AI. <laughs> <laughs> Dreyfus from Always. No, wait. <laughs> Maybe it'll break. Yeah. Uh, Brody from Jaws. Hmm. Mm. Frank from Catch Me If You Can. Ooh, oh, good yeah. answer. Yeah. 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 Ben. Ben wins. Yeah. <laughs> and mine is Gigolo Joe. <laughs> oh, oh, man. Yeah. oh, man. He's the robot that is, his function is to love people, but he knows that people hate him. So. <laughs> we can all oh. identify with that. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>